for this? I'm cooking dinner for someone. Oh, yeah? That's very typical of me to just be um, very typical as this cookbook author. Like a lot of these recipes are just recipes that I've many of my friends are like, oh, I've had that before at Meg's house for dinner. Really? For dessert or yeah. It's totally like how I connect with people. That's very nice. So I, I, you're a, let's introduce yourself. Yeah. What are, who are you and what do you do? So I'm Meg Gerber. I am a functional medicine dietitian. I specialize in gut health and autoimmune. And that specialty is really organically born out of my journey with celiac disease and needing to go beyond the food. Um, I think where my journey started is I did what a lot of people do when they have gut issues, which is like they assume that they need to restrict more. Mm. Like there's a lot of like, oh, I gluten I feel better off of, but then let me also find more things to take away. And it's interesting to me that we have that narrative around healing where it's like, let's deprive ourselves more (laughs) in order to get better versus really a lot of what I talk about in the book. And then in my journey with clients, uh, working with one-on-one clients is shifting that perspective to this mindset of abundance of like, what are we welcoming in? How do we support ourselves? How do we start to listen to what signs and signals mm. our body's giving us as a form of feedback that we can then honor, that we can then work with and support versus fight against. And I think that's the energy that, I mean, I know I was showing up in that way for my own healing journey of I'm going to fight this by like kind of punishing myself with more restriction. And that just um, hurts the body more. It, it's extra stress on the nervous system. And so I think what's really important for me as a dietitian in the space is, yes, talking about the food and how it's individualized because there's not one diet for everybody like Instagram sometimes wants to wants to preach. Um, But then in addition, the healing really goes beyond um, to look at the mindset and the stress management pieces and how you can manage your nervous system in the healing process. Because for me, that gives people their power back. That allows you to remember your own healing capacity. And so I like to tell people I'm partnering with you in your health journey to share with you my knowledge and my expertise, but then also to remind you of that breath work that you have within or ability to meditate or ability to really create stillness, which is what allows us to create an environment for healing. Um, and, and so because that subset of clients that I work with does tend to be these like people with chronic gut issues or autoimmune, I like to show them that eating, living, breathing to heal is different than eating, living, breathing to optimize or just, you know, be in modern America. Um, that for many people is different than what they expect. We're taught like do a bunch of cardio and eat less food and eating and living to heal typically is actually eating more than you would have thought and shifting your mindset around like what 
what are nourishing foods versus foods that aren't as nourishing and what are exercise practices that are supportive of healing Mm. uh, rather than maybe jacking up your cortisol and causing more stress in the body. So that's a way longer introduction. No, that's perfect. (laughs) No, it's deep. I'm getting some good, some good vibes. I love how you said um, that nutrition is individualized. It's not like a template that you just, you have a cookie cutter approach to everybody. When were you diagnosed? And what is, for folks that don't know, what is Mm, celiac disease? Yeah. So I was diagnosed in 2013. Um, I was at the time in my last year of college and I was doing kind of the things that I think a lot of people do in college, which is like I was in a sorority. I was drinking a lot of alcohol. I was like staying up late, drinking a lot of caffeine, just doing everything that looking back now, I'm like, who was that person? (laughs) But um, celiac disease is essentially an autoimmune disease where when you eat gluten, your body is attacking itself in some capacity. Like there's kind of this molecular mimicry that happens where your body can no longer recognize self from non-self and it starts attacking the intestinal villi. So Mm. if you think about the GI tract, it runs from mouth to anus all the way down. So this is why when people have Crohn's disease, for example, another inflammatory autoimmune condition, they can simply have a mouth like sores condition or a condition of the throat. And that's a GI condition. Mm. So you have these little finger like projections uh, called villi and in celiac disease specifically, those villi um, look flattened like a mowed lawn. They're totally kind of just flattened and damaged down and there's a spectrum to it, but the gold standard for celiac diagnosis is an intestinal biopsy via endoscopy. So Mm. when someone gets an endoscopy, they get like a scope down the throat. Um, and that's really a clear cut case of celiac disease. So what's funny is I remember being scheduled for my endoscopy and thinking like, I don't have a problem with gluten. I barely even eat gluten. And like at the time I think back and I'm like, okay, I was, I was eating Annie's mac and cheese. I was eating like Stouffer's frozen dinners, like college kid diet. Um, and I was actually eating probably a good amount of gluten, but I didn't have this clear reaction of like, I eat gluten and then I'm sick. It was more so, um, chronically, I had a lot of digestive issues growing up, chronically had constipation, Mm. inflammation in the gut, bloating was a common place for me. Honestly, when I finally felt what it felt like to not be bloated, I was like, oh, like this, this is normal. Um, and a lot of just like acid reflux burning in the throat. Um, and looking back a lot of mood imbalance Mm -hmm. and that's what I tend to see a lot in practice in terms of how the neurotransmitters and the mood is impacted because of that deep gut brain connection, mainly via the vagus nerve impacting like how things like depression and anxiety really coincide with gut health issues. Because Mm. if you think about it, like you're making over 90% of your serotonin, your feel-good hormone in your gut. And if the gut's imbalanced, then that system is going to have some level of imbalance commonly in a lot of people. So really without actively saying, oh, I'm healing or working on someone's depression, I tend to see shifts in that in my clients. I saw it in my own life um, just by working on healing the gut. It's interesting you say the gut and anxiety because I battled with anxiety 
for a while and I had no clue that it was related uh, to my eating habits. And once I got my eating somewhat in order, I just stopped eating so much processed food. It's been a journey. My anxiety pretty much was eliminated. But mm. I know if I go off track, like last week I was just on vacation and uh, I was eating, I was off I was off the wagon, I was eating bad, bad shit. And my anxiety came back within a couple of days. So mm, it's... I, I think it's there's foods that trigger me. But, you know, back to you. Do you think that you would have ended up with celiac disease regardless at some point? Or do you think the food and what you were doing, your lifestyle, manifested into it very quick, more, more quickly than it would have? That's a good question. I will also say, too, just as an aside with the anxiety, um, there's so many things that influence that. And I so commonly, if I get a client who deals with constipation and anxiety, Mm. um, many times there's a magnesium deficiency impact Mm. and how that's playing a role. And I, sometimes even that alone makes the shift, but, um, blood sugar and balancing that plays a huge role with anxiety. So it's interesting because a lot of times if you're noticing that with like being off of your, your typical course and it's like, a lot of refined carbs. It's kind of no wonder that anxiety can creep back in. So it's, it's great that you're in tune with your body like that to just sort of notice that feedback. Um, but with your question, celiac disease is a genetic condition. So there's basically two genes. And I talk about this in my book for testing purposes where, um, there's HLA DQ2 and DQ8. There's talk that there's more genes than that, but it's Mm. kind of that space where like there's still actively research being done, but essentially you have to have one of those genes in order to have celiac disease in the body. So, um, I've genetic tested my parents, for example, and they each actually have one of either gene. They have like each opposite gene. Um, and so, you are born with the gene and then something can turn it on. So you don't always have the gene and have celiac. It's typically like genetic condition. And then autoimmune is very commonly triggered by a trauma event or a life event that dysregulates the nervous system enough so that you're kind of manifesting in that whole slew of that molecular mimicry process. Um, For me, I've always wondered what that trigger was, but I really think it had to do with in college, I was doing that stuff I told you about, like drinking a lot, but then also I was on a bunch of antibiotics. I Mm. dealt with like all these chronic sinus infections and I was taking, I had a slew of about four months where I was on multiple antibiotics back to back. I know I look back and I'm just like, wow, what I would never do now. (laughs) But I was drinking alcohol while on antibiotics, just like treating my body so poorly. Like, oh, it just like pains me to think about it now. (laughs) But um, I think that was enough to just like kick me over the edge. Um, but it's interesting because my sister has celiac as well. So what I've seen in the research is that celiac specifically is more common in females of family members. So it's it's more common that if a woman is diagnosed with celiac, her mom, her grandma, sister, niece, or aunt will also have celiac disease more commonly than another male in the family. Yeah, I can't think of any. I, I actually know quite a few females that have Mm-hmm. Celiac disease. I can't think of a mm-hmm. male that has it. Mm-hmm. So when you started going to school, did you know that you wanted to do health and nutrition or did this diagnosis kind of spur the idea of, I want to dive more into it? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I always, um, I would say once I got to college, I got more interested in health and wellness. I played sports like in high school and that was always kind of part of my life, but I was definitely like the skinny kid who thought she could eat anything mm. for a lot of my like adolescent years. You were hated by a lot of people. Yeah. I just yeah. kind of, I worked in a cupcake shop. This was before <laughs> I was diagnosed with celiac. So it's so funny to think about how I used to just house those cupcakes like out of end of day of the work day. Do you know your blood type? I'm type A. Oh, see, gosh. Yeah. I always, I actually mentioned this to, to Andy. I There's this book, Eat for Your Blood Type. Yeah. Have you read it? I have thoughts about it. So every type A that I know can literally eat whatever the hell they want and really? remain skinny. I know some guys that I work with that are type A and they eat Whataburger. That's going out of style. Oh boy. I'm jealous. I wonder oh if that boy. I wonder if that has anything to do with it. But you're you're probably uh the you're envied, I guess you were envied by a lot of girls probably in high school. Maybe. I mean, genetically, it's like my whole family. We were all like string beans. <laughs> but um, honestly, looking back, I'm like, wow, I was really malnourished. Like yeah. I, I was definitely the kid who could eat anything. But I think because of depending on when celiac kind of went into full fruition, I was not absorbing things well. And mm. so that's why like I always stand by the statement, not you are what you eat, but you are what you absorb because I see a lot of people who seem like they're eating really healthy, but they're really sick because they're just not absorbing uh, that roughage or, or whatever um, food they're eating. Um, so, and bring me back to what your question was, if I might not be answering it fully. Um, did you want, did you know, like after you were diagnosed that, or before, did you want to do health and nutrition even before yes, you were diagnosed? Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Um, so I was diagnosed 2013, and at that time, I actually had started a nutrition program at UConn. They have basically a like coordinated program where you go and get your registered dietitian degree. And so I was already about a year into that, just out of sort of being like, oh, I kind of am into health. I like to cook. But my version of health then is very different than it is now. I was going to ask you. So very much. looking back at what you learned is all that information applicable or is it almost laughable? Like, mm, I would never really, I'm sure you were taught the foundations, but in regards to like what you actually apply and help people with, did any of it really help? Yeah, that's such a good point. I think about this all the time. I mean, for me, even though I have my RD and I have almost 10 years of experience in the field, the experience and then the additional certifications I've gotten are really what I use in practice. And then my own research I do on my own versus like what I learned in dietetic school is so basic and not all dietitians are created equal at all. And at the time they were introducing the my plate. Have you heard of the my plate? Mm -mm. It's like the new my food pyramid. I shouldn't say new. It's not really new anymore, but um, it's basically just this like plate example of like how the typical person should eat. And huh. it's just like archaic kind of like the food pyramid was. Um, I think they came out with it just because it's giving people a visual of like how to build a healthy plate, which is supportive for some, but yeah. When I first graduated, I was working in the hospital setting and I was, I remember trying to talk to people about like probiotics and fermented foods and they just didn't want to hear it. <laughs> like people with chronic heart conditions just don't care. Right. They well, don't care at all. They want to, it's, we, no one knows about that, right? It's always like, give me the, the drug that 
that can fix this short term totally. short term, you know? I yeah, and I should like stand corrected on that. It's not that they don't care, but in in that specific hospital setting where it's like I just want to get out of the hospital as soon as possible. Why is this random girl talking to me about probiotics? It's mm. I think we've been wrapped up into a society that is financially built around the pharmaceutical industry and it is a band-aid approach and it's a quick fix approach. And I even see that in practice. People want a meal plan. They want to be told like, just tell me what to do to fix this quote unquote. And it's not about that. That's mm -hmm. not what health is about. And, and you disempower yourself as the individual when you're like, so reliant on if I don't have this person or this med, I'm screwed. I, I'm really big on educating. I'm not sure if you are familiar with human design, but mm -mm. I'm a projector and projectors are very like, they like to educate. They like to share their story. They like to counsel. Um, is that the, the circle and there's like, there's like four yes. quadrants. Okay. I think I'm right with, yeah. I there's think like I would generator, be... manifesting generator, yep. Yep, yep, projector. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, that I just learned when I was working with one of my first business coaches and it was super empowering to just understand a little bit more about myself as a healer and as a teacher and as a dietitian in the space and practitioner. Um, but I think we see this even in real time, not to go deep down this wormhole, but in the mental health space, because this is something that is, we're all really present to, I think nowadays in 2022 with psychedelic research, a lot of it doesn't go fully to fruition because it's a, it's a one-time drug for a lot of people for managing mental health conditions. And the pharmaceutical industry doesn't like that. It's, you know, like they want something that people need to take continually like insulin that they have to depend on for the rest of their life. Yeah. It, and when you bring or you talk to people about this like holistic approach, you almost sound, because I, I thought about the same thing. Like if you would have talked to me saying what you're saying, I would say maybe four years ago, I was like, this chick's kooky as hell. Like she's a witch doctor. She don't know what she's talking about. And I think that's like the marketing campaigns that were done that are done by yeah. pharmaceutical industries. It's done so well because people believe in it a hundred percent. And when there's someone that goes outside the line just a little bit, you're almost like categorized as a conspiracy theorist or yeah. you're a witch doctor. Do you, do you get that a lot? I don't get it that often. I mean, I know that some people like view what I'm doing that way. And I kind of am just in the space where I'm like, I've seen the power of this work. I don't really care. But um, I also think sometimes ruffling feathers in the space is a good thing. Like making people a little uncomfortable is cool because it gets them to think about things in a different way than maybe they were taught. And um, I always like to tell people, come, come at it from a space of openness. Like, I, I have people come that way to my breath work and meditation too, of just like be open without expectation and, and kind of a look at this from a new lens of like a beginner's mindset, because we always, I feel like I always have stuff to learn. We're always learning, especially in the field of science. It's always changing. I think we even look at like the keto craze a few years ago and like so much has shifted away from that now. Yeah. And so I think we always need to maintain a level of openness, but, um, yeah, I think some people become afraid because it's like, it's different and it's, it's not what they're used to, but, 
Um, I always tell people it's for me, it's not about fear mongering, but it's about empowering you with education so that you can make your own decision, come back to your own home self and make that decision in your own energy away from everyone else where you can decide like, is this what I need to do or not? Cause we're getting, it's a consumerist society, right? Like we're getting fed so much information and there's so much information on podcasts now yeah. that I think I like to remind people like, just because that's their truth doesn't need to be mean it need to, needs to be yours. Like come back and make your own decision for yourself. And that's, I think the power of the right healer in this kind of space is the person who's reminding you that like, you should trust yourself in some capacity and you should listen to yourself and listen to the cues your body's giving you because we've, we've gotten away from that in some capacity. So you, you worked at the hospital for how many years? So I worked there from when I first graduated until like 2016 or so. So like three or four years. Okay. Are you originally from, you're not originally from Texas, right? No. So I grew up in Connecticut. So I'm a New Englander. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's funny because in Austin, I feel like I end up finding so many of the New Englanders down here. It's just very funny. There's a lot of them. Um, But I love the warmth. I mean, I originally was born in Florida, so I feel like that. I always go back to that. Mm. That's why I hate the cold weather. But I grew up in Connecticut, went to UConn, and then lived in Boston for eight years before I moved here last year. Awesome. And then when you moved here, that's when you made the switch to opening your own practice. So I opened my practice in Boston in 2020. Okay. It's always been virtual, but I started it before I moved. Okay. Um, and just super grateful. It really took off. I got very, um, I say I got very lucky, but I did put a lot of intention into it. And then um, kind of was just like, okay, what am I doing? I want to live in the warm weather. Like I have a whole community there and I love them dearly, but I've always wanted to be in the warmth. It's just for, for my autoimmune, like that is something that serves my body and my journey is like not to be in the cold. And then my brother and my sister-in-law and my cute little niece live here. So it kind of made it easy. No, that's perfect. It's a beautiful spot to be in. When you made the switch when you left the hospital that had to be a scary moment for you because you had the dedicated paycheck coming and you know or it, it was just set what was kind of the the, the pushing urge for you to do that it was just you weren't being fulfilled or you some gaps that you wanted to fill what, yeah what was the push I really felt in my heart it was almost like this dichotomy of I'm doing all of these things for myself and I'm pursuing all of these alternative therapies like acupuncture, like coaching, like body work that are really making a difference in my healing journey more so than my gastroenterologist doctor was. Mm. But then I'm teaching people things that don't align with that. Like I, I felt like I couldn't really go down even just like the wormhole of probiotics and gut health in the hospital setting. And so I think like that jumping point and the jumping point from when I left the practice I was working at, that was a functional medicine practice after the hospital, when I launched my own company, that was a maybe even scarier jumping point. Cause I was basically going from like money to no money and just yeah. like and and actually spending money on a coach at the time and just fully giving it up to God and just connecting and trusting and and um yeah looking back I'm just so grateful that that person at that time like something in my gut was just like you're supposed to be doing more and you have a voice that wants to speak to this 
side of healing. And I think it's been beautiful that over time, my journey's kind of just taken me down different paths. Like I wasn't always a dietitian who coached people on how to breathe for digestion. Like that's just something that like I learned in my journey. I do breath work every day. And I was like, okay, I'm done just talking about the food. Like no one, no one's in charge of me and they don't have to say, oh, all dietitians have to do X, Y, Z. I just kind of pivoted this practice and now gently force every client <laughs> into um, acknowledging that aspect of stress and stress management because I just find that I, or I found that I was only getting people so far in just looking at the food. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what kind of reception do you get with, with people when you talk to them about breath work or it's cause it's not just like the food is a, a major factor with autoimmune and just gut health in general, but it's not like the, it's not a hundred percent everything. So when you, when you start introducing people to new foods or maybe, maybe removing foods from their diets and then you bring in breath work, how do your clients react to that? Yeah. I'm pretty honest with people from the get-go. So before they sign on with me, I really paint this picture of what it looks like to work together. And I share with them the impact on digestion that stress has, like what's happening to the nervous system. And um, really that impact of like someone who's chronically living stressed is chronically spiking cortisol. Mm. And what that does is that your body even now just primarily recognizes that as I'm running from a tiger. It doesn't know the difference between you fought with a partner, you're stressed about work, you have negative self-talk, you're under sleeping, you're eating a bunch of sugary foods. Like it just sees like this body's stressed and it's unsafe. And what happens is like you're chronically spiking that cortisol and then spiking blood sugar because your body is like, I got to run from that tiger. Let me get that sugar high. So it's got energy and it floods the blood and the attention away from digestion. So you should think about that fight or flight state as really the opposite of rest and digest. So the fight or flight or the sympathetic over time can create insulin resistance in the body because those cells are like, we're so used to your sugar being high. We're not going to listen anymore. We don't need to put that into the cells and save that energy for later. So it really can have these catastrophic effects over time. And so I like to explain that science to people and really from the get-go open up their mindset to like, wow, I have a lot more stress than I realized. It's not just that I'm stressed about work. It's that, you know, I'm in a relationship that doesn't serve me or I'm not creating boundaries with work. That's actually something I work on with a lot of my clients because they need to make boundaries so that we can create space to welcome in the healing practices that we're working on. If they maybe need to do a little more meal prep or they need to have space for a morning routine so they can have a bowel movement, which sounds silly, but like I talked to people about what mindful defecation means, meaning like (laughs) space for pooping, attention to that, like taking your time. Rushing in itself is like part of our society and that's a stressor. It's incredibly stressful. And I say that not as someone who's on a high horse, but as someone who was that, like Mm. that was me. And I finally, but through a breathwork coach I was working with, a meditation coach I had, a functional medicine doctor that was kind of years of my journey, I finally realized like, whoa, I can help myself by regulating this system and really being the alchemizer for myself on a daily basis if I choose to. Absolutely. And I just look at really the breath is the best free vehicle we have 
to really hack your nervous system if you want to use it. And yeah. it's there. We can, we all can access it, but a lot of us just choose not to, or we don't know how. And so I really tell people, one of the things I start people with is just breathing at mealtimes. It's my rule of threes. And I talk about it in the cookbook. It's essentially three deep breaths, three times per meal, just so to get you to slow down. So really what it looks like is you're sitting down at the table. And also I tell people, sit the F down. I thought you were supposed to stand up. No. no, I mean, so many people eat standing up and eat on the go, but it doesn't get your body integrated into that cephalic phase of eating, which is your brain phase of eating. Okay. So we want to really engage the brain with, hey, I'm getting ready for a meal. That's why like cooking is such a beautiful experience because it gets the senses going. Maybe you're tasting a little something, gets your body in that space of like, all right, guys, we got to get ready. Let's start pumping out those salivary enzymes to start carb digestion in the mouth. Let's start pumping out stomach acid to break down your protein in the stomach. Let's knock on the door of the gallbladder and release bile acids to break down fat. Let's tell the liver we need some help with pancreatic enzymes, pancreas. Let's get that out there. So that whole orchestra is like a really beautiful kind of domino effect that happens when we get into that cephalic or brain phase. And so one of the best ways we can do that is simply by just slow the heck down, sit down, let your belly relax and take three deep breaths. And I sometimes get more nitty gritty with certain clients who really need more like rib cage expansion and breathing into the back. But we start there with just start with three breaths, ideally nasal breaths, because that's more parasympathetic or rest and digest promoting. And then stop twice more during the meal and do mm. the three deep breaths. And it just is this friendly reminder to slow down, get present, think about chewing, think about breathing. Um, just like when I'm telling people mindful defecation, it's the same thing. It's like we do so much in autopilot that the brain is not keeping up. And what I think is so empowering about this practice is that we increase that those digestive juices that I just mentioned by 20% just by the cephalic phase of eating, i.e. brain right. getting involved. Powerful without anything else. It seems too simple though, like just breathing. I, I, I just started doing it and I've noticed big benefits, but it's not something yeah. I do every day. I need to do it more often, but it, it seems like it's just too simple. Like what's the benefit of it? I mean, what kind of, re how do you when you're, when you're talking to your clients about breathing, like what kind of methods do you use? What type of breathing exercises do you have them do and stuff? Yeah. So we always start with that, the rule of threes. And then typically I have every client do guided private breath sessions with me, like it, within their package, it's kind of peppered in between some of the nutrition sessions. And so what that looks like is it's, it basically feels kind of like a guided meditation for gut health. Mm. Um, and they come into the session. I want them to be in comfortable, loose fitting clothing so they can really, a lot of my clients, I work with a lot of women a lot of them are just like holding so much tension because of what we've been taught in society. Society, that we like need to be skinny and hold our gut in and be, you know, yeah, look, suck it in, look perfect, suck it in. It's like a thing that we hear in workout classes too, which is just awful. And so I like to remind people come in, let the low belly just totally relax. And then I have kind of this 
bag of tricks of like different styles, whether it's, um, I have this one style called 360 diaphragmatic breath, or I call it beach ball breath, where mm. I have people basically put their hands on their back where the ribs kind of like the bottom of the ribs are and have them think about expanding in all directions. So 360 degrees into the front of the body, the side of the body, the back of the body, feeling that space between the rib cage, stretching those intercostal muscles to really fill the rib cage all the way up there and then decompress that back down like a like a beach ball. Um, some clients, I may have them just focus on low belly breathing because what we know in research is that more nasal breathing, slow exhale breathing, and lower body breathing versus chest breathing is more parasympathetic. Mm. So it's more rest and digest promoting. But simply, I mean, I like to remind people, you can't get this wrong because simply just putting attention to presence and breath is parasympathetic. It's, it's toning the vagus nerve. It's, it's having this impact of like telling the body I'm safe. And I think the question I get a lot is like, well, should I just be in parasympathetic, parasympathetic mode all the time? And it's like, no, most of us are more so skewed to sympathetic. So it's the practice of getting into parasympathetic more often than you're in sympathetic to tone this muscle of reminding the body it's safe and it's okay. Right. So it's kind of, it's a practice and it's, it's a muscle toning because it's similar to like, you want to go to the gym once and just do your biceps once and be like, okay, good. I've got big biceps. Like you, this is a practice similarly where we were, we're reminding the body. Okay. Now I'm taking deep breaths. I'm recalibrating the system of calming the nervous system, reminding of body safety. So I can optimize these functions like digestion, assimilation, motility. Um, and what's interesting about that is what studies have shown us is chronic stress people. So people who really are just living in that chronically stressed state tend to have more motility dysfunction. And what that means is often a lot of them have constipation or bloating or stuck gas because that migrating motor complex, which is like your cleansing wave of the gut has some level of disruptance. Like it's just, it's not working properly. Um, and that I would say is being looked at, at least in my space, the gut healing space. Um, there is, there's a doctor, course and I'm forgetting his name now. He's huge in like the SIBO, uh, Dr. Pimentel. He does a lot of SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth research. And he, all of his research tends to come back to this thought process that disruptions in the migrating motor complex are the root cause behind a lot of disease and dysfunction in the GI tract because that cleansing wave moves things along and keeps, you know, extra food and debris from sitting too long and then breeding fermentation and overgrowth. It's a lot to unpack. So you're, you're talking about the, the vagus nerve and, um, that reminds me of doing cold plunges and mm. sauna. So do you recommend, or do you practice that yourself? So I, I do. Um, I hate the cold so yeah. much. <laughs> I hate the cold. But I will say living in Austin, it's a little easier. And like our neighbors two doors down haven't, I don't know if you saw it when you I walked saw in, that. they have an ice plunge. I thought that was yours. Uh, I was like, no, but, they, but they're very friendly and they let us use it whenever we want. Um, so yes and no would be my answer there. So 
you know, because I work with people who have autoimmune and tend to be chronically stressed or very ill, I'm usually starting them with vagus nerve practices that are a little bit more gentle. So I may have them doing, for example, slow, steady breathing, um, even things like gargling, singing, or gagging, which sounds crazy, but like taking a tongue depressor. So they can take the back of their toothbrush or a tongue depressor depressor, and you're stimulating that little kind of like uvula in the back of the throat just until you're getting a gag response that your eyes are watering, which sounds like crazy and yeah. weird, but it is helping to tone the vagus nerve. Really? Yeah. So, I had no clue. So it's something you want to be measured about. Like I like to have clients do it maybe six to eight weeks and, and see um, the difference that's making. I've seen it make a big difference in people with motility dysfunction. Mm. So more the like constipated side of things. Um, but, but when I say motility dysfunction, I mean, constipation is a big bucket. I would say if there's anything that I've taken the deepest dive on because of my own journey is constipation. So like anytime I get a constipated client, I love it because they're just a thousand percent going to get well. It's like my favorite (laughs) thing to, I have all of kind of the back bag tricks, but what's interesting about constipation is like you can have kind of classic case constipation where someone gets better with things like fiber and water and hydration and minerals. Um, or you can have really this like a uh, pelvic floor dysfunction type mm. of constipation where that person needs to really go beyond the food. Certain foods will help it and vagus nerve practices will help. But a lot of times I'm referring them out to like a pelvic floor physical therapist or a visceral therapist, someone who can actually palpate the area and help them with um, kind of in a biofeedback sense, recalibrate the muscles and um, allow things to sort of flow and function better. And I don't think it's talked about enough in the space. I had an appendectomy to me years ago. And anytime you have an abdominal surgery, an abdominal trauma, an injury, even women with childs, like having children, um, you're leaving some level of trauma to that area that can cause scar tissue. Mm. And that scar tissue is like dead tissue that can leave adhesions. And so it feels weird sometimes. Like sometimes my clients are like, why are you telling me to go do pelvic floor PT as a dietitian? But that has a huge impact on like what those strictures are doing to hold back the flow of the food through the intestines. You're, I love that you're so focused on the gut health. And I've recently started to equate gut health with, with soil health. So it's like one in the same. And even if we're, you know, someone's going and trying to be healthy and be cognizant of the food that they're buying, it's almost impossible to escape the the crazy herbicides and pesticides that yeah. are sprayed on stuff. So what kind of advice do you give your clients when, when picking out fruits and vegetables and uh, even meats? Yeah, yeah. I love this topic um, because we can't not talk about it yeah. in this space. Um, so, you know, I think what I want to be mindful of is like, of course, it comes down to like what's affordable to the person and what's accessible to them, which I think is a struggle in the U.S. for a lot of people. Um the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15 are my favorite resources for that of just reminding people like, okay, if you can't do everything organic, try this. Like just l- hang out in the land of like the Clean 15 list. But also um, Zach Bush, do you know who Zach Bush is? No. He um, He's incredible. He is a doctor who has kind of an oncology end of life care background, but he's now been really prominent in the soil health space. And he, he actually spoke at the... Um, 
what good shall I do conference that okay. the um, force of nature people had oh. earlier this year. Was he on the podcast recently with Taylor? Yes. Yeah. I think so yeah. Okay. He's yeah. super inspired. That's the first time I've heard him. He uh, very intelligent. He lives somewhere around here, doesn't he? Maybe? I'm not sure. He's down here pretty often. I feel okay. like he connects with so many people down here. Like he's always on like Aubrey Marcus's podcast mm. and, um, but he, yeah, he's probably the most inspiring person in the space. I feel just because of the way he bridges the gap between science and then like also trusting your intuition and, and, um, the power of community and connection. Um, but I, like to empower people just around the fact that like glyphosate and atrazine and like all of these pesticides in the U S are unavoidable. Like mm. you can't avoid them. It's about reducing them. So he really, I think inspires people around like, what can you grow? Can you grow something or touch a plant in some way? And even some, like I consider myself living in a city and I still like to find a way to like touch the soil and my plants in my house or grow something on my soup or grow herbs because grow like herbs especially are like such an easy thing. Like my chive plant just thrives for with minimal attention <laughs> and you can even start there. Like you don't need to be growing everything that you're eating, but I do think it's so important to support local. I think local just it, it just really outplays the rest in terms of like most of those local farmers, if not all really are doing their due diligence to avoid those heavy pesticides like glyphosate. Cause they have like their kids, and their grandkids on that farm. And they probably know more than anybody, the impact of that, whether that's affecting their kids from possible cancer risk standpoint, ADHD, like there's so much coming out in the research now that's really scary with glyphosate. I think from a gut health perspective, um, we now have this solid research to show that it's triggering something called zonulin in the gut, mm. which is essentially um, causing leaky gut or intestinal permeability, where it basically breaks the little tight junctions that link the cells together. And so you lose that beautiful cell-to-cell -cell communication that is just like inherently supposed to be part of our microbiome. And um, interestingly enough, glyphosate uh, th that facet of the research is really similar to what we've seen in gluten research. And gluten was one of the first crops to be sprayed with glyphosate. So it's kind of this chicken or the egg of, in my practice of like, people are always asking, well, do we all need to be gluten free? And I, my answer is the answer I have for most things, which is it depends. But, um, I think that a well-sourced gluten, a sprouted einkorn, cracked wheat or a whole wheat um, is so different or a sourdough that someone makes themselves is so different than a Cheez-It from yeah. the grocery store. Well, even I've had you know friends that tell me that the food like wheat or pasta made in, in Italy, I have friends that are Italian, they say it's vastly different than yes. the ones we get in, in America. Yeah. Um, and I think the the requirements and the regulations around what is sprayed on crops in other countries is a lot more strict than the U.S. Oh, yeah. We should have a red flag out for the fact that multiple countries have outlawed glyphosate, mm. yet we have not. It's pretty incredible. And so for me, I think we vote with our dollars. Like I personally uh, really 
spend my money on the places like local pastures as a place nearby that like sources all regenerative and local meats and eggs. Um, I spend my money on people like force of nature, Mm. um, going to the farmer's market. I think that that's like the biggest step we can take where if I can remind people that it is really like a voting for, you know, what we're asking for on a greater level, because, you know, Andy can speak to this so much better than me, but what monocrop agriculture has really done is it's taken away that innate, beautiful network of a microbiome that we used to have in our soil. And we have that in the soils of like regenerative farms, but they're kind of fine and few between right now, hopefully growing. And what happens is we lose that mineral density that's innately supposed to be there. And that translates to our food. So that's why on my side of things, working with people on, you know, who have malabsorption or who have a lot of deficiency, I do hair mineral testing on clients and I find that people are so deficient more than ever. And constantly people are asking me, well, why is that the case? It's because of the soil. Like it's because of the food system that we're handed. Um, and it's unfortunate and there are ways around it, but it's why, um, for people who follow me on Instagram, I'm so passionate about minerals. Like we all need to be taking minerals daily. Um, it's just different than it was even 20 years ago when we really didn't need to think about ingesting minerals exogenously, but it's not coming in the same way from the soil anymore. Even when you take vitamins that, you know, magnesium or zinc or copper or whatever, does your body absorb it from from vitamins like we would in, with food? It's not readily as available in the vitamins, right? You, you don't get as much, right? So it depends. I mean, I think we have to separate out vitamins from minerals because... Mm. Vitamins, um, which tends to be like vitamins are a big focus in like the conventional health space versus minerals, not as much. And many vitamins we make in the body. So vitamin D, for example, we get from the sun and the skin. Vitamin K2, we like make vitamin K in the some of the enterocytes of the intestines. Whereas minerals, we don't make them. And they basically run our bodies. So for example, we used to think that magnesium ran about like 300 bodily processes and it's 3000. Yeah. We learned during COVID how, how crucial magnesium was, right? Yeah. I mean, we all were, were just completely like steamrolling through our magnesium stores (laughs) in the body because like the turnover of magnesium is really, really high. I see that in, in testing my clients too. Like people are just turning it over like crazy. And it's why I tend to actually bundle things for people with magnesium, I'm like, let's do a little oral and let's do a little topical combo um, because then they can hit themselves with it a couple of times during the day because it's just so easily turned over. Yeah. So what kind of stuff do you recommend? So hold on. You talked about the clean 15. Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. What is that? So it's the list of produce that's generally, and it changes year to year, that's generally the cleanest produce in terms of like lowest in pesticides that Mm. you can buy at the grocery store. So if you were like, I can only afford 10 things organic um, or or, uh, yeah, 10 things organic, then I would say everything else on that list, you could get clean 15 because it's just less contaminated. Whereas like commonly on the dirty dozen list, we have like berries is always on there. Blueberries, strawberries, they just tend to be really dirty. and Even if they're organic, right? They're still... There's a question there depending on like, I think that's why local farms just can be so much better because you don't get as much of that cross-contamination. They're now saying like there's this cross-contamination risk depending on where the farm is located. I can't speak to that as well, just not as a farmer, but um, 
I, yeah, I think there's a lot of nuance there and I feel the best about a farm that's like, we grew this at this little local farm. And even if they're not certified organic, I, I trust them. And I, and I also encourage people to like ask questions, talk to your farmer because also farmers are so many farmers are so lonely. Mm. Like they're just out there grinding. They're not making enough money. Be a community driven human and just like ask them and talk to them and like get curious because I can't tell you how many at at the farmer's markets I've gone to. It feels like you're just making their day by being interested and in really what they're creating. They're, they're kind of like baby is like their food and their produce that they're, they're creating. Absolutely. What can people do to clean their fruits or their, their vegetables if they're, if it's not organic? Is there, I've heard people do like, um, and my wife does this, uh, apple cider vinegar, I think with water, let it soak. Are there other stuff? Is yeah. there other methods to clean them? I, that's what I do. I usually will like fill the sink and just, you know, do some filtered water and some apple cider vinegar soak. Um, the unfortunate thing is that the seed is typically soaked mm. in glyphosate. Yeah. So you're not you're not going to get rid of the glyphosate just by the surface level, unfortunately. That's so scary. So what about the animals? Yeah. Yeah. Um, If the animals are consuming, you know, feed that is, is laced with glyphosate and we consume that meat, do the animals have a way of, of ridden the chemical better than we do? Or do, are we still, no matter what, going to get that with the meat? I think I probably can't answer that question as well as like someone who is raising animals. But what I will say is that um, grass fed versus grain fed does have an impact on your body for sure. And so what I would also say there too, in the context of stress is, you know, an animal that's been raised in this like, you know, grass fed happy environment where they can like graze the fields, they're not going to have as much cortisol output and stress hormone output in their body that then translates to inflammatory cytokines, et cetera, that were then eating just like a stressed human has a physical response from that stress in their body Mm. of inflammation. So does that animal. So eating an animal that's been raised in a happier environment, like really the force of nature people speak to like that is that makes a huge difference. Um, and then I will also just say like grain fed versus grass fed, there's actually, um, a shift in the omega-3 content of the meat of Mm. a grass fed animal. Like you'll have a more, um, omega-3 rich meat when you have grass fed beef, for example, than if you're having grain fed. That's interesting. Yeah. And it's mainly just like a lot of those grains are those, you know, more inflammatory like corn and soybean and things like that. Um, so similarly to, to things like industrial seed oils and the inflammation that that brings into the body, that's, um, there's, there's more inflammation there in an animal like that. However, I will say, you know, it's not affordable for everyone to buy grass fed everything. And I am in the camp of, eating meat in some capacity is part of a circle of life approach to health. And it is so much more supportive of vitamin and minerals and and bioavailability than approaching life from a vegan mindset. I'm just like, I'm again, that feels controversial for people, but it's just not 
the approach that I take with the subset of clients I work with. I work with autoimmune. I work with gut issues. They do not do well on a vegan diet. It tends to be so much more disruptive to their gut. They're malabsorbing like crazy. Um, I think that there is totally a place for uh, plant-rich eating. And I think that there are people in the camp who are maybe like going overboard with meat and they need more of that plant-based fiber. <laughs> so I think it's a balance and it is individualized. But I will say that generally it's difficult for me um, to heal a client who is eating vegan. I would say the person who's eating vegan and they feel they feel fantastic, like the rich rolls of the world. I'm like, keep doing it. Sounds like you're doing great. Absolutely. But the people who are like, I don't feel well, I'm like, okay, that sounds like it's not been working for you. We have to make some shifts. And because of the mineral deficiencies I see, those people are on so many supplements. And I'd rather, you know, to the point of what you asked me earlier, yes, getting thing from a, things from a food basis is always going to be more bioavailable um, than a standalone supplement. I do think there's some really great supplements out there. I think there's some great electrolyte supplements for minerals, especially for filling in mineral gaps that a lot of people have nowadays, but you can't outcompete beef liver when it comes to like supporting minerals and, mm. and protein and, and just the fact that like when you pick up an orange, yes, we have whole food vitamin C, but you have all of these other phytonutrients that are just synergistically built into that food in a bundle of fiber that like we can't really create in a supplement. So I'm in the camp of like, I'm someone who does take supplements. I do use supplements with clients, especially because I have people who have like, you know, bacterial overgrowth where we have to use antimicrobial herbs. But the goal is always getting my clients to this space where they're really having, you know, less is more, the minimal amount of supplements possible with this scaffolding really mineral dense, nutrient dense foods. Mm. Do you get a lot of pushback or I guess when vegans or vegetarians do come to you for, for help and you, and you see that they're not, um, you know, thriving and really optimized and you ask them to introduce fish or meat, do you get some pushback from them? Yeah. <laughs> and, does, I mean, and does it go well? And has there been cases where they've introduced and then in a week or two, they've like reversed their symptoms? Yeah. Um, I have. I just, I recently had a vegetarian I was working with and, I, you know, I am really honest with people from the get-go. Like I don't like to cut corners and lie. I'm straight up with people where it's, I'm basically like, I we are going to talk about animal dense proteins in some facet. And there's ways we can work on it. Like, especially if that's something that's like part of someone's culture or like moral obligation of theirs. Um, that's something I'm more apt to honor and work around versus someone who's like, I know I'm eating healthier by doing this because mm. I just don't agree with that. And I like to educate them using people like Diana Rogers, who's like a really powerful, um, dietitian in the space of understanding really this circle of life approach with regenerative ag and why the animals are part of the picture of our life, the soil life. Um, and I also think that there's like, we have options, you know, like for example, things like oysters and mussels don't have a central nervous system. Sometimes for a vegan that feels a little better to them than someone eating like grass fed meat. 
for yeah. example. Um, sometimes they're more amenable to seafood and eggs. And so that's a place I can work on. Sometimes they do really well. Like a, a lot of my gut clients don't do super well with regular cow dairy, but they might do really well with like sheep and goat dairy, which are different types of casein. They have different types of casein called A2 that tend to be better tolerated from um, a gut and cardiovascular standpoint. We've just seen it's less inflammatory on the system. When you, when you talk about dairy, is it pasteurized or do you have your clients test out like raw dairy? Raw dairy, I think definitely um, can be a lot easier for people because it just ends up having more enzyme enzymes to it to make it easier to digest. Um, the sourcing tends to be better, but I think it's one of those games where like not everybody has a raw dairy source uh, easily accessible. Yeah. If someone does we're totally going to try it. And that would be like one of my first lines of fire along with goat, sheep and buffalo dairy. Um, I think people just have a way harder time with typical cow's milk dairy. Um, but that being said, there's more and more farmers that are showing that like their cows are a two cows. And so that type of dairy, that type of casein people do better with. So I'm definitely not anti-dairy. And in fact, like I feel like the plant-based foods category and aisles at the grocery store are quickly becoming some of the most junky because they're mm. filled with seed oils. A lot of them have oats in them, which are literally sprayed twice with glyphosate. We spray them twice. Yeah. We spray them once and then to dry them out, we spray them again, which is just absurd. Um, and then a lot of them have added sugar or thickeners or just like really not food. Um, so I think like the more we can get back to these like primal basics, I love getting people back to that place because I think with keto and paleo, people have started eating so many packaged foods and things that are just filled with fat, a lot of plant fat, like nuts and seed based fat, which is not nuts and seeds are not bad. Um, but for people with autoimmune and intestinal permeability, they can be a little more difficult to digest. Um, and it's about having those foods in the context of like animal dense proteins, mineral rich fruits and veggies, not just relying on like the almond butter, banana bread slapped with extra almond butter. <laughs> um, it's really, it, it can really slow the metabolism down. Like it takes us more time to digest, uh, fat. Like it just weighs more gram per gram. And so I find that people with motility issues, like it causes more sluggish digestion when they're so overloaded with fat. And it's a common thing I see because so many people think that like low carb, high fat is like the way for everyone. And it's not to demonize fat. It's not that I want low fat, but we forget that like a lot of animal based proteins have this beautiful, like actually very stable nutrient and saturated fat in the entity itself. And you can simply eat, for example, eggs and some sourdough toast, and you actually check the box of protein, <laughs> fat, and carb at your meal without having to put a lot of extra thought into it. I have to ask you, I got on the bandwagon for a little bit, and I've talked to a bunch of people that are in the carnivore community dietitians, doctors, I've, I, and there's a, you know, quite a, there's, there's famous ones. There's, you know, big ones on Instagram. And I fell into the trap a little bit of, of thinking like, this is the way to eat. And I ate that way for a while, mm. but I'm starting to believe. And I think, I think Andy kind of, she turned me on to this book and I forget what it's called, uh, but I'm reading it right now. But it, it talked about like how important vegetables are for your gut health. Yeah. And for someone that 
is in the carnivore community, what are some least, because they, a lot of them talk about like plant toxicity and how plants are toxic to humans and, and they have natural defense chemicals and stuff like that. What are some of the least toxic plants that we can eat or vegetables that we can eat? And what are some of the most beneficial ones? Yeah, I have a lot to say about this. I mean, we, if there's anything we are rock solid about in research, it's that plant and plant chemicals and the phytonutrients we get from them are so healing, so disease fighting, disease preventative. And honestly, if I think back to my hospital days when we used to do enteral and parenteral nutrition for people who were critically ill, where they're basically being fed through a tube or fed through a vein, Mm. I remember with the vein fed parenteral nutrition that you should only do that for as little amount of time as you can because you're not using the gut. And we always want to use the gut and stimulate the gut and support that microbiome because a dead gut is a dead dead human essentially, for lack of better words. And so what's difficult for me with carnivore, with even some of the keto diets is that they're so deprived of plant fiber that we're not feeding the gut really the food it needs to survive. It's like you can take probiotics all day long, but in order for them to really stick and flourish and build this beautiful symphony of really the byproduct of pro and prebiotics, which is um, postbiotics or short-chain fatty acids, those are some of the most healing entities that we're seeing in terms of disease prevention, colon cancer prevention. Butyrate is one of the biggest ones that like more and more research is being done on that you've probably heard of. And we don't do that if we're not eating some level of fiber. (laughs) And so it's why we saw with a lot of the keto studies um, that it had a detriment to gut health. Um, and kind of like deprived the gut microbiome where we saw like low commensal bacteria, meaning low good gut bacteria as a result of it, because we weren't feeding that pathway. So I think like whenever just what I'm really intentional about as a dietitian is like all of these fad diets where it's like so far on one spectrum and so far on the other, it, there really isn't any need for that like level of strictness. It is about, yes, individualizing and finding the secret sauce for someone, but it's meeting in the middle. Like there's a place for all of it. There's a place for animal protein and it's so healing. But there's also a place and a need for plant fiber. We um, we're not, we're doing a detriment to our gut without it and, and to our antioxidants overall. Um, so I would say, you know, when the conversation comes up of like plants are toxic, which I just, I don't agree with that. Um, there is, you know, there's the, there's the gun, Dr. Gundry's of the world who talk about lectins and phytates and oxalates. Um, there are ways to hack your food to make it a little bit easier to digest and more bioavailable when it comes to plant fibers. So things like fermenting. So having sauerkraut, if you feel like you do poorly with like regular raw cabbage, um, soaking and sprouting. So for example, I love for my clients, especially constipated ones to do soak, soaked chia seed, like in a chia Mm. seed pudding, because it's broken down some of that lectin and phytate component that's inherent in plant foods. So grains, beans, nuts, seeds, 
tend to have more of those compounds. And so there is a way where like, for example, Eden foods, jovial foods, they have pre-soaked and sprouted beans that they can, or they have in glass jars that look like typical canned beans, but they've been made to be a little more digestible. You can pressure cook your beans to make them more digestible. And so it's finding this balance because there's some people in the autoimmune space who I know, um, don't do as well with like a lot of beans, but maybe it's a threshold. And that's always what I want to bring people back to because so many people are caught up in like food sensitivities and cutting foods out. And usually it's not like one standalone food. Typically that's the problem. There's usually something deeper going on in the gut, like overgrowth, like digestive insufficiency, inflammation, that once we work on that, you're able to expand what you're eating and many times just paying attention to the feedback of like, okay, when I have a whole cup of milk, I don't feel well, but when I use cheese as like a condiment to the meal and kind of peppered it in and it's like sprinkled on, I feel fun and I feel good. And so I think it's important to sort of find that threshold balance. And that's usually what I coach clients on where like, there's no gold standard test for food sensitivities. For example, um, the gold standard is a fluid elimination diet guided by a practitioner or a dietitian. So I always tell people like, even with low FODMAP, which has so much literature behind it for IBS. Now that should be short term. No one should be low FODMAP for their whole life. Like it cuts out a huge list of plant fibers that are really healing and really nourishing and bitter foods that are so good for digestion and gallbladder health. So I like to look at like, okay, maybe we short term, see how you feel without something. And then we mindfully add it back in with this intention of seeing like, what is that person's threshold? So I don't know if that's a perfect answer, but I will just also add that cooked foods or cooked vegetables just tend to be a lot easier to assimilate and break down and digest in terms of like they're actually more bioavailable because they're easier for your body to break down and absorb Mm. than a lot of raw veggies. So I'm pretty against like the raw food diets where it's like all raw. It's just so much heart. You need this higher inherent enzyme load in your body to break all of those raw plant fibers down. So it's a balance. And sometimes for certain people, it's seasonal. Like, you know, from an Ayurvedic standpoint, I have a little training in that space. And as we get into the fall and the winter months, it's like, let's warm our foods up. Let's eat things that are warm. Let's spice our food. Let's use bitters more often. Um, let's really think about chewing because it tends to be a time where people just have a little bit of a harder time digesting stuff. Whereas in the summer, um, more often than not, people can do a little bit better with raw, just based on like, you know, it has to do with what's local and seasonal. Right. So what are some of the key things that you you try to get your clients to include? Some of the, the the easier vegetables that people can just go and buy. And I'm asking selfishly for myself too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say, you know, an easy win, and I talk about this in the cookbook, is um, beyond just eating enough fiber and eating the right kinds of fiber, which mainly for most people means more vegetables, bitter foods. It's like what, one what, of my like, like what are bitter foods? Yeah, one of my favorite categories. So radicchio, endive, dark leafy greens, especially dandelion greens, arugula, radish, mm. turnip, broccoli family veggies, including broccoli sprouts, cranberries considered a bitter, fresh mm. dill is considered a bitter, fennel seeds are considered a bitter. Um 
citrus peels. So I love to focus on that because many people struggle with sugar cravings and bitter foods help to kind of counterbalance and almost light up the taste buds in a different way than we're used to like sweet and salty. Um, and we actually have the most bitter receptors lining our entire GI tract more so than any other receptor. So circling back to motility, we support motility and flow of that like digestive, um, cleansing wave with bitter foods the most. Mm. And also, as I was probably reading through that list, I'd be curious to hear from you if those are foods that you eat commonly, because commonly most people are like, oh, I don't eat a lot of those foods. Like, no. I don't really like bitter foods. It's not that palatable for most people, but it's a great way for you to really diversify fiber intake for a healthy microbiome because the gut likes diversity. Um, it's almost like I call your gut like sometimes the cranky teenager. It's like they like things to change up. They like diversity, but also they do really well with routine in the sense that like having a structure to like uh, your really the circadian rhythm support of like similar sleeping and waking times and getting light exposure in the morning and the, um, having some element of a break from food during the day or I don't like to I don't love to use the words intermittent fasting because people have a lot of stories around that but like a some gut rest in between meals rather than grazing all day is really supportive for gut health um, and so like overall bitters just have this aspect of changing up people's routines. And then in addition, I see in practice a missing link is acknowledging the gallbladder. What the gallbladder does is it stores your bile that's made in the liver and it releases it at a meal. And most of us probably listening to this podcast and you probably know someone who's had their gallbladder removed, mm -hmm. cholecystectomy. Conventional medicine basically does kind of the pharmaceutical approach of like, okay, we don't know what to do with this. So like, let's just take it out. Like, <laughs> oh, that's not working. You're getting gallstones. Like, let's just take it out. And there's a spectrum to it. Like a lot of my clients come to me and have like stagnant bile flow or sludgy bile, just based on like signs and symptoms I can see with stagnancy and digestion or issues with diet, like breaking down fat or feeling like real heaviness after a meal or sleepiness. Floating stool can be a sign of that. Um, so there's a lot of things I look for when a client comes into me, but many things make us at risk of gallbladder dysfunction. And since I work with a lot of women, that's commonly coming up because they've been on some level of synthetic hormones like birth control pills, hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. And what can happen there is estrogen concentrates cholesterol in the bile. And so it can kind of congest it and make you more prone to possibly sludgy, slowed, or all the way far down the other end is gallstones. That is crazy. The... And I never thought of, I never had to think about, um, birth control because obviously I'm a man, but my daughters, I, I yeah. there's a lot of women talking about what, what it does to your body. And it's just sounds crazy. Like I'm going to take this from the moment of that my parents or that I'm sexually active until I want to have kids. Like that just sounds crazy. You don't totally. do that. You don't do that with anything. Totally. And, and it's like similar to the glyphosate conversation where I'm just like, this is not me saying every woman needs to get off of birth control because I want them to feel like they need to make, if that's causing so much stress on their nervous system to not be on it, that's not helpful either. So it's about finding the balance, but empowering yourself with the knowledge. Like a lot of us, myself included, went on birth control for 10 years with 
no idea of the risks and side effects. And I'd so much rather a woman go on it knowing, okay, I might have to do some extra gallbladder support. Okay. My minerals are probably going to be more deficient. I'm probably going to have B vitamin deficiency. Mm. I'm probably going to have low stomach acid as a result of it. Like there's a lot of things that it causes or, or increases your risk of. So if you're able to know that and then buffer, I just had a client this morning who like, it's just a non-negotiable for her to be on it. But we really talk about like, okay, you're going to have a bitter food at every meal. Like how do we set you up for success? And similarly with glyphosate, it's like, we can look at, okay, what are the risks? We don't need to live in fear, but like, how can I support more local farms? There also are, there's some products and supplements I'll use with clients that help support more of that glyphosate detox as well for people who have a lot of it in their system. But it's finding the balance because there is this whole component of healing that is your mind and the mind is very powerful and it will add a huge layer of stress if we let it. So there, you know, I'm not perfect at this, but it's just finding this balance of like awareness, using the knowledge and then also honoring that you're a human. Absolutely. I love everything you're saying. It's like, um, I vibe, I vibe with it all. What inspired you to, to write the book? Yeah. So it's a cookbook, but I call it a cookbook kind of with intention because it has some of my story in the beginning and it really is a soup to nuts approach on how to support someone with celiac or autoimmune. Um, it's kind of the book I wish I had when I first got diagnosed to like hand to my friend, family member at the at the moment where it happened of how you can make that person feel less alone. Because my story in that early phase of my disease um, or diagnosis was like, I'm alone. No one gets it. I'll figure it out for myself. And just like super sassy, but also like incredibly sad and alone. And I think ultimately, you know, for me, bigger picture, all of this comes back to like, How can we build community and make someone feel less alone in whatever healing journey they're on? And so that for me, it started out with like, I just have all these recipes and like, I want to put them somewhere and I'm constantly sharing them with clients. Like, how can I, you know, put them all into one place, but organically through that process that really started the beginning of this year, I was like, you know, I want to share a little bit more and go a little deeper on the layers of maybe someone can relate to this on how their autoimmune or just their journey with IBS felt like alone and how it impacted their quality of life and how you can understand kind of the bigger pieces of the emotional journey. And for me, it started with how do I talk to myself? How do I want this narrative around my healing journey to look and sound? And then how do I share that with others? Because I think if you show up with this energy of like, I hate this and this freaking sucks and no one gets it, that energy, like that energetic is felt. It's like, it's like you walk into a room and you can tell when the couple over there has been fighting, you feel that energy. And so similarly, that energy in our own journey has an impact. So how can you show up in a way where it's like, I am my own ally first and I trust that like I have options for myself. And um, for me, those options came from like, I'm going to try these different recipes, things like tiger nut flour. Have you heard of tiger nut flour? No. So I have a couple of recipes. You should try them um, that use tiger nut flour in the book. And that was like one of my favorite things I found in my journey. What is tiger nut flour? 
So it's a root vegetable. And for me, I had a lot of flare episodes with autoimmune where I had to revert to the only thing that was helping me was like a really restrictive diet called autoimmune paleo AIP. Mm. And so it's, it doesn't have nuts and seeds. It doesn't have eggs. It's like very restrictive. And, um, it's something that I'll still use as a tool when I get gluten, for example, when mm-hmm. I get gluten contaminated because it just kind of rests my system, but then I can still eat things. And tiger nut is AIP compliant. So it's nut and seed free, but it kind of has a nutty flavor and the flour goes great in baked goods. Oh. So for me, I really missed like a muffin or like just a healthy baked good. And so I feel like kind of my secret sauce is having baked goods that don't have any added sugar. They're just sweetened with like banana for example. Um, or if anything, some of the desserts are like a little raw local honey. Um, but keeping that really minimal. And, um, for me that made my journey like feel even more fun and expansive to share that with people. So I think, um, my mindset is really looking at like, how do I, um, connect with people more through food and then use this book as a vehicle to really bridge that gap for people. Because most people, I think picking up this book, either, know someone on an autoimmune journey, a gut healing journey who feel frustrated about food or just simply are like, I want to eat better for gut health, but I just don't really know how. And I want some recipes that aren't just like chicken and uh, sweet potato and vegetables. (laughs) Like I want something different. Yeah. I like how you set up the book. There's basically like a get to know you introduction section. And then it almost looks like you, uh, this is my first time looking at the book, but it almost looks like you you give some advice on your breathing and like how to, how to stock your pantry. It looks pretty cool. Yeah. How long did it take you to write? So I started it at the beginning of this year. I kind of like, I was sitting at my parents at Christmas last year and I was like, this is the year I'm going to do it. I'm going to just write this book. I'm going to bang it out. And, um, so yeah, January was like the beginning of it and kind of just like took the full year. I took a little bit of a lighter client load towards the end of this year, which was nice just to give me a little more space, but it was a, it was a cool space to lean into. I totally am like the business owner who's like the doer. So to lean into more of this, like, how do I, how am I being in order to write this book? That is really more of this creative baby. It has, there's different energy that goes into a project like that. Yeah. Did you did you lean on other people to to help you through the process? Self publish? How did you find your publisher? All that good stuff. Yeah, I self published. Um, I did lean on people for sure. So um, it happened pretty organically. I one of my first coaches had written her own book. Mm. Um, so first off, I kind of touch pointed with her. She wrote more of a um, like memoir. It wasn't really like a cookbook. So there were still a lot of gaps to fill in. And from there, I kind of created my list of like, okay, what else do I need? Did some research on like self-publishing, had some books that helped guide me um, and kind of piecemealed my team, which ended up being this incredible group of all women support systems. Um, I have a friend who I actually met down here in Austin who works with a publishing agency and she kind of was sort of a self-publishing consultant for me and just like such an angel in the whole process and so calm with me in the process, (laughs) which like was incredible because it it is stressful and it's like you're, you're learning as you go. I mean, if I had, if I had known, I don't want it to stop anyone from writing a book because it is a beautiful experience, but, um, it requires a lot of patience and a lot of things go wrong and it's a lot of time. Like I originally thought I was going to do this in like three months and that was just so unrealistic. Um, but I think 
also creating really time and space, like open space to sit and write was really important to me because I wanted the writing portions to really be me. I used a content editor who's a close friend and actually a past client. So she really knew my voice and sort of my quirkiness, but I wanted that book to sound like me, which I think the beautiful thing is like the friends and family who have read it so far are like, oh my God, it really, like it's you. I can tell it's you wrote this whole thing. Um, but I had a local Austin photographer that I got connected with. She had a whole team and brought in this incredible food stylist for me, which you would think like, Oh, a food stylist isn't necessary. I am team food stylist now. Like (laughs) you have to have that for a shoot like this. Like these photos came out incredibly, like there's no way I would have been able to tap into that without, um, without her help. And then my designer did all of the like book compilation of like the color schemes and the fonts and, and really spent a lot of time and energy and kind of bringing my vision to life. So, um, there, yeah, there were a lot more pieces than even just the typical, um, like narrative book just because of the photos and the design work. And, um, there's custom design in there to show some of the digestive processes I talked through. Um, and then I found through my food stylist, an incredible cookbook editor, like copy editor to do a lot of the grammar work. And that was like such an incredible find just because I think someone specializing in that for cookbooks is very unique. And that is not my forte at all. (laughs) Um, so I think any, in any project, the realization for me, I mean, I wish looking back, I had a project manager. I now have a new appreciation for project managers who help you keep deadlines because you end up wearing a lot of hats and it's definitely recognizing like your zones of genius and then allowing other people to support you because just because I think I can take some food photos or arrange some food on a plate, like I needed that support by the professionals for sure. No, absolutely. It looks really good. What is your favorite recipe in the book? If there's one, like when someone picks up and grabs it, what's the one you're like, this is the one you need to start out with. I know. I mean, okay. It's, it's so hard because I've basically separated them between appetizers, breakfast, lunch, dinner, entree kind of thing. And then desserts. You even had some drinks in there. And my mineral mocktail. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm so jazzed about minerals. I couldn't not put that in there. (laughs) Um, I, I just love the tiger nut, the salted banana chocolate chip muffins because Mm. they're unique because they're tiger nut. They don't have any added sugar and they're just like the salty chocolate, like they're very me. That's such a me recipe. Um, but I have a lot of bowls in there too. Um, and I like the antioxidant Mexican bowls. They're just like a different take on taco night for a lot of us that like, I grew up with the classic, like have the hard shell taco with the ground Mm, beef, sour cream slopped in there, like, which is so (laughs) yummy. Um, and it's kind of like my take on that in a, in a little bit of a different way where I'm just, I'm using like homemade plantain chips, for example, which is like, so easy to make and so yummy and actually mineral dense. They're dense in potassium. So I love to get people eating plantains. Um, so I would say like, those are some standouts, but I love also the seven layer Mediterranean dip, which is like mm. a, um, kind of like a Greek 
tip that I actually relied on a lot in my journey when I would like go to a friend's house for a get together. And if I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to eat anything in here. I want to bring something that like almost can be feeling like a meal because it's so filling. It's basically a dip with like a homemade tzatziki and olives and tomato and hummus and um, just a lot of those like Greek flavors and fresh herbs that you can have with a crudite or gluten-free crackers or like a toasted gluten-free bread and um, just gives kind of a wide variety of like plant compounds and color, but also feels a little more filling. That sounds spectacular. How can people get it? Amazon. Amazon? Yeah. You got a website too or social media? We're selling it through my website. So I'm at groundednourish.com. Such a good name too. Yes. How did you get that.com? That's well, I wanted Grounded Nourishment because that's my whole business name. But okay. Grounded Nourish was like it, someone else took Grounded Nourish as Bastards. Grounded Nourishment is there. <laughs> I know. They took my domain. Um, but I'm at Grounded Nourish as well on Instagram. Um, and Grounded Nourishment is like I still am a stand by that name. I mean, it feels so true and authentic to the way that I'm practicing because I really feel like the nourishment for me is mind, body, soul. It goes beyond the food and really using the breath as a vehicle to ground yourself, to come back to your home intuition and, and you're listening to your body. Um, that's, that's like the facet of this work. I love everything that you are saying. It's amazing. What's, I kind of asked this to all my, all my guests, but what's, and related to, as regards to food, what's the one thing people can avoid that makes the biggest, that would make the biggest impact? If there's one food or, uh, it doesn't have to be food. It can just be, or it could be something that they need to incorporate. What's the one thing that, that you think would, would make the most benefit to someone who's trying, who's on this health journey or just starting the health journey? What's the one thing? Yeah, because it's kind of nuanced, but you know, I think because I always like to take an abundance mindset, I would say the one thing I want everyone to add is the breathwork at meals. Mm. Like, I want everyone to start there because you're only helping yourself. Just like you said, it's like it feels so simple, but it has a huge impact. And for some, it has a humongous impact. Mm. Like, sometimes that's the one game changer for them. Having that level of attention and mindfulness with food is just it's also remembering one of the greatest pleasures of life. Like it's such a pleasure to have food. And so I think maybe one added layer to that is cooking and cooking in community is I think a huge shift that someone can make to better, not only their eating patterns, but just like their mental health. Um, and I think, you know, I don't love to have a, a restrictive mindset, but I do think that a, a, a huge thing that people can do to make a big difference is avoiding processed sugar. Mm. I think, you know, the sugar that the food industry is adding for you to the food is meant to be addictive. It's meant to leave you wanting more. And so you really shift and change your taste buds when you can move away from like getting the frosty at McDonald's and like the processed food that has 10 to 15 plus grams of added sugar and just getting back to basics and and reading the labels to be like, okay, cool. That was just sweetened with a little bit of dates or I chose to add a little bit of honey or a little bit of coconut sugar to my recipe that I made myself versus 
the food industry doing it for you because they're always adding gobs more than you're ever going to add on your own. And I think that that, you know, again, when I say fruits and vegetables has so much research, refined processed sugar has so much research (laughs) and we can't look away from that. Yeah. Meg, this is very special. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you for hosting me. It's wonderful. You got a nice setup too. Love the vibe. Thank you. How can people follow you on social media and all that stuff? Yeah, I'm mainly on Instagram. Um, they can follow me at Grounded Nourish. They can engage with me there. I run that whole account myself, which is why many times I'm taking space from it. <laughs> um, but also www.groundednourish.com. They can find the book How to Glow Gluten-Free on Amazon. Um, and I think that's it. I'm not a TikToker. You I should just, be. Really? I you should be. I don't know if you should be, but people, I mean, people keep saying that to me. That may be something I move towards eventually. It feels so not aligned with, with me right now. Um, but I, but I see the value, so I may get there eventually. Yeah. Well, this was awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll do it you. again. This has been wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye.